The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. I do not know how to cook very many things. There's only a few things that I know how to cook um, that are beyond putting something into the toaster. I can do that fairly well most of the time. Um, But beyond that, there are only a few things that I know how to cook. One of them is um, a bolognese sauce. And I learned to cook that from uh, serving in an Italian restaurant. And um, I wanted to know how to, like I was serving at this restaurant for a couple years. And I was like, look, as I, before I leave here, I wanna take with me some uh, Italian recipes. I wanna be able to know how to cook some things um, when I leave here, and you know, look, you can just look online and find some uh, Italian recipes, but then you're like, I mean, you got to look everywhere. You, there's no telling if it's actually going to be good. You're going to try it, and if you got the recipe right, maybe it's good, maybe it's not. But I had eaten so much at this particular restaurant, I knew, like, I knew the chef. He was always did such a good job. It was a recipe that was tried and true, and I loved it. And so I went to the chef, and I was like, look, I can trust this guy. I can. It might be like some dude in his basement who's actually never cooked this recipe ever before online that's like posting something. I don't want that, that guy. I want this chef. I know him. I, wanna, I want him to tell me, okay, how do you do this? And so um, I pulled him aside after shift one time. I'm like, okay, how do you make that bolognese sauce? And so he kind of gave me the rundown of how to do it and, and uh, what to do with, uh, with the sausage and the ground beef and then, um, you know, how to, to cut up. You have to put celery and carrots in it, but real fine. No one wants vegetables in a meat sauce, but if it's real fine, it makes it hearty. And he talked about then the, the trick is and the key is, and this is like the first time I'd really attempted a recipe with this idea, the key is a sauce reduction. And so most of you probably know what this is. Um, if you don't, the basic idea is um, you, you make the sauce, you put it in the pan, and then you let it simmer or boil for a period of time. It could be 15 minutes, could be an hour, could be longer. You let it simmer for a while, and what happens is actually the amount of sauce actually reduces down. The heat actually makes it reduce down. There's actually less in the pot than when you started. And that would seem counterproductive. Why would I want less in the pot? Like I I want a lot of food, especially if it's good. But the idea is as it's boiling and it's boiling off some of the sauce, what you get as a result, what's left behind is a flavor that's richer, it's thicker, it's truer, it makes it that much more tasty. And so he was teaching me this whole recipe. Um, I've tried it over the years. I've never gotten it as good as he's gotten it, but it's at least halfway decent. And so I checked the box. I know how to make uh, that bolognese sauce. But the key was, like, the the key for me was I I had someone that I knew that I could go to. I had someone that I could trust. I wasn't just wandering around on the internet looking for a recipe. Like, I knew this guy. I could trust this guy, I could go to this guy, and he was willing to help me, and uh, that really served me well. And I was thinking about that, about how critical that dynamic is in uh, the era that we live in. It's an information age. As you know, we have greater access to information than any other time in history, and that's not just something that happened for the last generation. I mean, even in our lifetimes, most of us that are engaging this message right now, in our lifetime, we have had more access to information than ever before. We probably remember when there was like a couple dozen TV channels. 
And then one day there's like a couple thousand TV channels, okay? Like, why do you need that? Like, you're never gonna actually watch all of them. Like, never, okay? There's all these random weird channels. It's like, this channel is dedicated just to badminton. And it's like, there's four people out there that are like, finally, okay? Like, I've got my channel. I mean, we have more access to information than ever before. Okay, the, the internet comes on the scene and then we have it like on our phones and everything kind of wires so that we have so much information. And what that does is it puts the burden on us, which really in this era is now just exhausting. It's exhausting. There's just such an influx of information constantly that if we just wanna find a good recipe that we can trust, do we have the place to go to where we're like, okay, look, I don't know, I'm sure that's fine, but I know that I can trust this. And you know, honestly, like it's something that really just, as a believer, as a pastor, I've just realized, like realizing how the information age kind of intersects with following Jesus and knowing how to steward the sheer amount of information we get, like that's a thing. That's something we've gotta know biblically, like how do we navigate that? And so my, my hope is that from this text that it brings some clarity and it brings some rest to a season that can be exhausting with the amount of information. And I wanna take you to a passage which is instructions from Paul to a guy that he's mentoring, his name is Timothy. And I wanna take you there, it's in 2 Timothy chapter four. If you have a Bible or Bible app, um, go ahead and open that up. So if you're, you're here at West Pines Campus or Cooper City or you're watching online, grab your, your Bible, grab uh, maybe your phone if you have a Bible app, and it's gonna be on the screen, but uh, man, it's so important to be just reading it in your own Bible, you want, or your own Bible app, you want that familiarity with your Bible so that as you're reading it through the week, it's not something foreign to you. You're familiar with it. So your Bible or Bible app open to 2 Timothy chapter 4. As you're opening there, let me just give you a little bit more background to this book. Um, 2 Timothy is um, written from Paul to Timothy. That's why it's called that. Timothy is a pastor. He's a young pastor that Paul's mentoring. He's like a, Paul is like a father figure to Timothy. Paul didn't have any children of his own. Um, Timothy kind of becomes like a son, and he, he mentors him, and we, this is, 2 Timothy is part of a, a group of three letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, all written by Paul to pastors he's mentoring, and so because of that, it, they're known as the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles, and this is one of them, and so we kind of get a window into how um, Paul is mentoring this young pastor, but what's interesting about this is if, if this was meant to just be be a private letter, Timothy would have taken it, held on to it. We would never have it, you know, almost 2,000 years later. Obviously, there are timeless truths that are instructive for all of us, and so it gets circulated around, and um, God saw fit to make sure it was meticulously preserved for us today. So we're going to pick it up, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. I charge you in the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now pause with me right there. He's about to command him to do something. In fact, there's going to be a series of five commands next. 
You see that colon there right at the end of the verse? But I want you to, I want you to see how he leads up to this series of commands. This is bringing this letter to a close. It also adds some gravity to the fact that this is probably the last Timothy ever heard from Paul. So one of the closest relationships in Timothy's life and in Paul's life, these are like the final words to this young man. And I want you to hear like how he goes into this last series of commands. He says, I, he starts with, I charge you. Now let's just think about that phrase, I charge you. Um, we don't really use that phrase very often. Like you don't use I charge you in like everyday language. You don't look at your kids and say, I charge you, son to go clean up the laundry on your floor. Like you don't use that language. I charge you, daughter, it's your turn to empty the dishwasher. Okay, that's a lot more formal than we typically use. A charge is, it has some formality to it. A charge is someone who's in a position of authority, challenging and urging. It's not like a blank command that has no like emotion behind it. It's got no like, he's, it's, but it's more than an encouragement. It's not really a suggestion either. It's like an encouragement plus a command in one. Like I want, I'm charging you. I hope that you don't just obey this. I hope you own it, you believe it, you work it down in your life. I hope that this becomes a part of who you are. This is a very kind of formal language. I am charging you to do this. Okay, you follow me so far? But it doesn't stop there. Like, he adds a lot of, like, emphasis on this charge. Okay, did you notice this? If you just said, Timothy, my son in the faith, as my final words to you, I charge you to do this. Like, that's a lot, like, right there. But that's not enough for what Paul's about to say to Timothy. He escalates it. Timothy, in the presence of God Almighty, I charge you. Whoa, Paul, like, calm down a little bit. Okay, that's intense. Timothy, Almighty God who breathes solar systems out of his mouth and is holding your molecules together, we are standing in his presence. As you're reading this letter, know that God sees you and is hearing me charge you this. Read this and, and own this as if it's from God himself. Hear this and tremble, Timothy. Yikes. Wow, Paul, like that is a serious escalation. But he doesn't stop there, does it? Does he? He says, Paul, in the, Paul says, hey, Timothy, in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, you know, the promised Messiah that all creation has been waiting and groaning for, all the universe has been waiting for this one being to come and rescue, him, rescue it, that is the Christ, that is Jesus Christ, in the presence of God and the Messiah, Jesus, I'm charging you this. Woo! There's some fire on this, Paul. And then he keeps going. You know who Jesus is, right, Timothy? I think he does, Paul. Okay, like I'm pretty sure he knows who Jesus is. 
He's the one that will come to judge the living and the dead. Every human being who's alive right now or dead will stand before Jesus and give an account for their life. So I am charging you because you will give an account for this before Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one through whom everything was made and the one for whom everything was made, the center of the universe, you will stand before him and give an account for what I'm about to tell you. Wow. But he's not done. Timothy, in the presence of Almighty God, in the presence of Jesus, the Christ, the judge, who will return and bring his kingdom with it. I'm charging you this, Timothy, because before you're even done reading this, it may all be over. Jesus may have appeared. He may come screaming out of the sky on a brilliant white steed with all the armies of heaven coming down, and he may be speaking a word out of his mouth that is so powerful, it's like a sharp sword that is striking down the nations. Yeah, I'm charging you in the presence of him. This is not really everyday language, okay? Like, you're probably not going to use this language, like, with your kids later this afternoon about cleaning up their room, okay? Some of you are like, actually, we're at that point, okay? Like, I'm going to just say, I'm tra- I mean, in the presence of God, like, what in the world is happening in there? Like, you might be at that place, okay? But just, I want you to see, like, if you're Paul, like, you can't, there's nothing left to say at this point. Like, you cannot... Add more emphasis, more gravity. He just put the gravity of the universe into this charge, this command, this encouragement, this urgency. So what in the world is he about to tell Timothy? Paul's currently in jail. He's um, probably shortly after going to be, he was beheaded um, by Emperor Nero. That's probably about to happen. Timothy will eventually be imprisoned himself, but he'll be set free. But he might be like envisioning, hey, Timothy, you might get thrown to the lions. So like I'm telling you, you'll stand before Jesus. Like don't cower in front of the lions. You might be burned at the stake. I mean, all people, Christians of that generation, these things happen. You might be beheaded like I was. Like what is he about? I'm trying to think like what could possibly be so critical, so urgent that Paul's throwing all the weight of the universe behind this charge? Well, here's what he says. Five commands. I want you to see what he says. Let's pick it up in verse two. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, and do these things with complete patience and teaching, with complete patience and teaching. Five commands here. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What is um, Timothy supposed to do? The first thing is he's supposed to preach the word. It's a command to preach. The word, the word there that is translated word is the word lagos. Lagos is sometimes translated as scripture. It's sometimes translated as meaning Jesus, um, sometimes referencing the person of Jesus. Why is it sometimes referring to the scripture and sometimes referring to Jesus? Because all of the scripture is about Jesus. If you're preaching the scripture, you're preaching Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the New Testament looks back to Jesus. The whole message to humanity is about the person of Jesus. Jesus was the word made flesh. He was the embodiment of the message to humanity. 
Timothy is to preach, but not just preach anything, not preach what's on his mind, not preach what's popular, not preach what's, um, you know, what's current. He's supposed to preach the scripture. He's supposed to preach Jesus. That's command number one. Command number two is to be ready. It says, be ready in season and out of season. Here's what that means. That's like the ancient Greek way of saying, preach and do it whether it's convenient or inconvenient. When it's fun and when it's not fun. When it's popular and it's not popular. He says, preach, preach Jesus, preach the scripture when it's inconvenient and when it's convenient. He says, and then he says these three things and they kind of get kind of like staccato. They kind of just rapid fire these three commands. He says, reprove, that kind of preaching. The command is you will be reproving when you are preaching. We don't use reproof very often anymore. That means like to expose. It's to kind of like take the, the roof off, take the cover off. Let's pull the, um, you know, pull the disguise off, take the mask off, reveal you. The scripture will reveal, it's a mirror. The scripture reveals who we really are. It exposes things that we're very good at hiding. We're very good at hiding. Adam and Eve, first thing they did after they sinned the first time, they sewed fig leaves for themselves and went and hid. We hide. We hide behind things. We put disguises on. What does the scripture do? It reproves. It exposes. It shows who we really are. He says that's a command. Preach in a way, preach the scripture in a way that reproves and exposes. It'll rebuke. He says, Timothy, if you're, as you're preaching, it will be a preaching that will rebuke. The scripture, what does it do? It rebukes our lives. The scripture is not a source that we use to just kind of like stack the things that we like. We, we look for scriptures that support the things we like to do, the things we like to believe. No, what the scripture does is it rebukes us. It says our heart's deceitful. It rebukes us. What should happen in the scripture is we're going along. We're like, I like this way. I like this thing. And then the scripture says, hey, that's sin. And we say, okay, I need to change course. It rebukes us. It corrects us. And the last thing is, is that kind of preaching will encourage what does that mean? Um, it's not just kind of like a shot in the arm, like, hey, let me just lift you up. That's not that kind of encouragement here. It's urgency. It is stirring up to urgency. The sense here is that Timothy would preach in a way that, that urges and pleads, please, this is the direction we need to go. Follow with me. Come with me. Come with us. Join up. Encourage and, ur and urging to join. These are the five things that um, Paul charges Timothy to do. Now, like, seriously, Paul? You marshaled all of that. I mean, you, you're about like, you're going to punch Timothy, okay? You're like rearing way back, putting all your force into it. You're calling him before God Almighty and all of this stuff. Like, why so much to do something that's pretty obvious? I mean, that's what ministers and pastors do. They preach. They're supposed to preach the Bible, right? Like, what is the big deal? Why so much urgency, so much weight? Why put the weight of the universe behind this? He tells him why. Next. Look at verse 3. For the time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why is it absolutely critical? Why is all the way to the universe behind this challenge to Timothy? Why? He says there's a day coming. And this is how he describes the day. People won't stand firm on biblical truth. They're not going to stand firm on it. They're not going to stand their ground. They're going to walk away from it. And he says, this is how it's going to happen, he says. He says, they will have itching ears. Like, what a very interesting way to put it. Isn't that interesting? Itching ears. I don't know if you've ever had, like, a mosquito bite that's, like, on, like, for some reason, like, a mosquito bite, like, right on the ankle, like, the thin skin right there, you know? I actually got one right in between like my toes and like I think it kept me up like all night. Like I was just, it was miserable, okay? And there's just something about a mosquito bite. Like it's just, it calls to you. <laughs> it beckons you. And like at some point someone told me if I scratched the mosquito bite on my foot, my foot would fall off, okay? Like I don't know like what's supposed to happen but I know that I am not supposed, like under no conditions, are you to scratch a mosquito bite? Like, I don't know why. I don't know what happens, okay? But you cannot scratch that mosquito bite. And so it's there under my sock, okay? And I feel it all day, but I can't scratch it. I mean, when you've got like an itch like that, all you want to do is scratch it. And if you give in to scratching that mosquito bite, it's just, ah. Like, that's the only way to describe it is that noise right there, okay? It just, it's just so deeply satisfying, okay? Now, like, I, I kind of, like, bothered that Paul used this language because it, like, messed me up for, like, a couple hours after I thought about it. Like, imagine that itch, like, in your ear, okay? Like, that'll just ruin your afternoon to think about that too hard, okay? When I was a kid, I got ear infections when I was little, like, a lot. Like, I almost had to have tubes in my ears. Maybe some of you had that happen or your kids had that happen. But an ear infection, when it starts, before it gets painful, as that fluid is filling up in your ear canal, it gets itchy in there, Okay? And you can't put a Q-tip, like, once you go too far, like, bad things happen, okay? So you got to be careful in there. But, man, an itch in the inside of your ear, it could drive you crazy. And here's what Paul is saying. He's like, look, there will be people who have itching ears. What is he saying? There's things they so badly want to hear that when they hear it, it's like inside, they're like, ah, that's what I wanted to hear. And just like itching a mosquito bite, it doesn't take the itchiness away, does it? The more you itch it, the more you want to itch it. The more you need to itch it, the more it calls to you. And so the more they hear what they're so desperately longing to hear, the more they hear it, the more they want it. And so what they will start to do is accumulate for themselves teachers. They'll find as many teachers that will tell them that truth so that deep down they're like, ah, that's what I wanted to hear. He says that dynamic will happen and it will lead people into believing myths. It will lead people into believing things that are just not true. They're empty. They're make-believe. 
And he says, so that's the dynamic that's happening. He says, that's going to happen, Timothy. And then he says, so here is what you, that's what happened to people in that day. This is what that will require of you in that day. And then he loads another four commands on Timothy. First, you have to be sober-minded. He says, in the midst of whatever um, hysteria there is, you will have to fight to be a clear-thinking person. You'll have to be clear-thinking, standing firm on the Word, on Jesus, on the Scripture. you have to be clear-thinking. That's the first thing, sober-minded. The second thing is he says, you will have to endure suffering. Isn't it interesting, like he puts... Right in the middle there, he says, as you're being sober-minded, that will bring about suffering in your life. You'll have to endure that suffering. He says, be sober-minded, endure suffering. He says, you will have to do the work of an evangelist. You will fulfill your, your ministry, your service. Now, I want you to look at that word evangelist. And I'm going to nerd out here for, for the second uh, for a second in um, the ancient Greek. And um, I know that's interesting for about three of us in here. So for the rest of you, just hang in there with me. Okay, here's the word for evangelist, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in um, English letters, okay? So you, oops, I've already misspelled it. There we go. All right, here we go. Okay. Okay. Euangelistu, that's evangelist. Now, if you look at this, you can see where we, how we get the word evangelist. Like, if I cut it off here, see how we kind of get evangelist? These two uh, gammas right here, together, they make the NG sound. This U, if you just turn that into a V, okay? Okay, you see how we get evangelist from euangelistu, Right? What that means is our word evangelist is not a translation. We haven't said, what does this word mean in the ancient Greek? We have just transliterated. We've just gone letter for letter, which isn't bad, but that's just how we got the word evangelist. So let's say, what does this word mean? Okay, let me break it down. First part here is the EU, you. That is the word that means just like good, can stand alone as a word, but it also can be a prefix like eulogy. Eulogy, that's got the U in the beginning, and that's got the uh, logi there, that's logos, like good words. Eulogy, if you're giving a eulogy, you're saying good words about someone. Hopefully, that would be a, a eulogy. This part is good. And then look at this next part right here. If that was an N, that would be our word angel. Okay? When we think of angel, um, how it's most often used in the New Testament, we think of the creature, a cherub or a seraph, cherubim or seraphim. But in the more broader context, the word angel just means messenger. So in this sense, the root means message. Okay? So, um, uh, euangelion, if, it, if this was different, it would mean good message. What does that mean? So like good news which means that is what we say is the gospel, okay? 
So the euangelion, this is the Greek word that we translate gospel, which means good message, good news, that's gospel. And this istu at the end is kind of similar to the, suff- the suffix of list, like evangelist. So this is formally the person that is doing the work of presenting the good message or the good news. So if we have euangelistu, if we have this ending, here's essentially the meaning of what he's saying. He's basically saying a gospelist. Do you see this? Four of you are with me, the rest of you fell asleep, okay? You four, you're tracking with me on what he's saying. We think of evangelist. We import a lot of different things into what we think of evangelist, okay? What the original sense of that word is a gospelist, someone who works with that good news and takes that good news, declares it, presents it, works with it, and that's what Timothy's called to do. That's in that day. In that day where people are wandering away from sound teaching, falling into myths, uh, they have itching ears, they're accumulating teachers, his mission is to be a gospelist. Take the gospel and apply it to the day. That is his command. That's what he's supposed to do in that day. Okay, now, you're here, you're saying, okay, look, following you, I'm tracking with you, this sounds like a sermon for preachers. This sounds like this is a, this would be great for pastors. Like maybe as a church staff, we should get together and study this passage together and and talk about it. Maybe it sounds like, hey, no, this is a great one for for, uh, other pastors in the region to come and teach each other. Like why does this have to apply to me? This is vital for us because this is the rundown of as you are finding a local church, This is how you know if the local church is doing what it's commanded to do. Like this is, this is the description, the job description for the local church. This is how you look and, and see if they're doing that. Now, um, why, why do I, I bring that up? So, um, statistically right now, in the Western church, North America, particularly our nation. Post-pandemic, those who are attending in person are roughly, generally about 50 to 60% of what did before the pandemic. Um, That's across the board in churches around the country. There's some outliers but that's across the board in churches around the country. That's churches throughout South Florida. That is in our church included. So then what we have to ask the question, what is going on there? Now, let me just um, put it like this. If you have a, a pan and you have a sauce in it and you turn around and there's only 50 or 60% of the sauce in there, one of two things has happened. You tripped and spilled half of it out. That's bad. Or it's actually exactly what the chef wanted. It's been sizzling on the, the heat of the fire and reduced down to something that's more intense, thicker, tastier, and truer. This is what I believe he's been doing with us as a church and churches around. It's a sauce reduction. So as we turn 
and move forward, what are the things, what's the density, what are those flavor notes that we want to get brighter having a sauce reduction? What are, what are the, the, what's, what's the, the tastiness? What are the ingredients that we want to take with us? Now, let me just take a step back and just, I'm going to shoot real straight with you. I'm just going to level with you. We had a series plan that we were going to kick off about a month ago. And we had been working on that series for like a year, maybe longer. We were super excited. We were going to come out of the fall with it. And as we got right up to it, we just said, no, oh, the Lord's doing something else. And we pushed this, that season off to the spring. And basically, week by week, just seeking the Lord, Lord, I feel like there's a special word that you've got for us. And each week, we've been going through just a different word that he's just had for us in this moment. And it seemed like he's gotten hold of us and wanted to speak some things to us as a church. Next week, we're going to pick up with a sermon series that we've been planning for a long time. And so before we did that, um, there's one last word that we felt like we needed to take out of this season. And I want to put it to you like this. There's a phrasing Rebecca and I use and we use as a, as a church. It's called, say the last 10%. And here's what that means. When there's important conversations or even conflict conversations, a lot of times we say 90% of it, but it's scary to say that last 10%. So we don't say the last 10%. But that 10% is often the most important and catalyzing 10%. It's that boss who's holding his employee accountable and says the 90% because that next 10% is hard to say, chickens out, doesn't say the last 10% and doesn't help that employee and doesn't help that employee catalyze to be someone even better than, than they currently are and more productive. But it's that last 10% that's so important. You can say 110% and that's not good. But you got to say the last 10%. Here's the last 10%. It's the part that honestly, it took another pastor telling me, if that's on your heart, you need to share it for me to be willing to share it. It's hard for me to say. I don't actually want to say this. There's other things I would rather talk about than this. In our day, There is a trend throughout our entire society and it runs deeply into the church. I'm not just specifically talking about City Rev, I'm talking about churches in our generation. Christians have itching ears. There are things that they so desperately want to be affirmed, they want to be stated and taught from every which way. They want to be reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed. And so they're accumulating teachers at a rate that Paul could not have anticipated or imagined in his wildest dreams. Think about the people in Timothy's day. If they wanted many teachers, think of what they would have to do. They would leave work or leave their house go into the city to an amphitheater or go to a street corner where some crazy person is teaching or preaching. That is where they would hear. They're not reading it because you couldn't read. And they would have to do that. So if you wanted many teachers, you'd have to miss work. 
You'd have to leave your family, you'd have to shirk your responsibilities, and you'd have to be down at the amphitheater every night or down at the street corner in the town, middle of the town, the city center every night to hear someone teaching live. That's what you would have to do. And you would only be able to teach, hear the people teaching that came to your city. That's what Paul had in mind when he's saying, man, accumulate many teachers. Never in his wildest dreams could he have imagined the level of the ability to read that our population has to be able to read sources, any source of all types of teachers, never in his wildest, wildest dreams could he have imagined that we would have something called a television and the majority of us have multiples in our home that we can have showing us and teaching us with thousands and thousands of channels. Never did he imagine that we would have the entire world's teachers on our devices that we can listen to and have on in the background 24-7. We've never had a greater capacity to accumulate teachers for ourselves than we do in this generation. And on top of that, the apps that bring us those teachers are designed logarithmically to find out, oh, is that what your ear is itching for? then I will keep pumping you with more and more and more and more and more teachers. I will make it as easy. You don't have to do anything to start accumulating teachers. You press one video and you sit back and it will cue the next and cue the next and cue the next and cue the next. And so what Paul says here to Timothy is this is what that will mean for you. This is what then the church's response in an age like that is with everything they've got to, in the midst of the hysteria, in the midst of the myths that people go out and start believing, is to preach Jesus. Preach the scripture. Preach it when it's convenient. Preach it when it's inconvenient. Preach it when people are going to cheer. Preach it when people are going to leave the church. Preach it when people are going to say, good sermon. Preach it when people are going to write you an angry email. You preach it in season and out of season. You preach just what the scripture says. You're going to preach Jesus. It's, gonna, it's going to expose, it's going to rebuke, it's going to hurt. If it's been a long time since you've been going down the road and allowed yourself to be rebuked by scripture, something is broken because the scripture is not just a source for you to get ammunition on what you already believe. It rebukes our hearts that are desperately wicked. It's going to encourage and exhort with all urgency. That's what the scripture does. So there's a sauce reduction, and here's why the sauce has been reduced. In general, now there's, I'm not speaking of any particular person in specific, I'm not even specifically talking about city rev necessarily, but there are two general um, reasons the sauce has been reduced. What's happened to that other 40% or that other 50%? And in general, there, again, there's outliers, but in general, here's basically what's happened. Some were coming to the church, but it was not a priority in their life. And so when the pandemic hit, it was just too easy to stop going. And they wandered off into something else. But a huge chunk, maybe just as many, maybe more, sat at their church, at their churches over the last couple years. And when their church taught something different than they believed politically or culturally, they left. Now think about that dynamic. If you're leaving your church for something, 
That means you believe it's tied in with your spirituality. That makes it a discipleship issue. So if you're leaving because something at the church that you go to or went to does not align with your cultural beliefs or your political beliefs, that means you've been discipled somewhere other than your church. And in our generation, this is what Christians will have to decide. This is the line in the sand. Where are you going to go to get discipled? You're going to have to pick. YouTube's going to disciple you, or your church is going to disciple you. Fox News or CNN is going to disciple you, or your church is going to disciple you. WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, that's going to disciple you, or your church is going to disciple you. And there, if, you're, if you're not being discipled at your church, you're accumulating teachers to fill your ears with the things that they're itching to hear. But the call of the church is to bring, to preach the scripture, and to use the message of Jesus to rebuke, to reprove, to encourage in those moments. It's to be a gospelist and take the gospel and bring it to bear on every sector of our life. Here's what the scripture says. I want to read a verse to you, and I'm going to be honest with you. I think, to my knowledge, over 15 years, I've read this only one other time because it's very uncomfortable. I'm reading this not because I want to read this verse to you. I'm reading it because I am disobeying what um, the mission is as one of your pastors if I don't. And as Paul said, I will one day stand before the one who comes screaming out of the sky to bring his kingdom to bear. Here's what Hebrews 13, 17 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You say, oh, preacher, well, that's easy for you to say. You're one of our spiritual leaders. No, not easy for me to say. Did you see what the second half of that verse says? I give an account. Your other pastors give an account. Your small group leaders, your ministry leaders, they will give an account for your soul. The YouTube channel you subscribe to does not give an account for your soul. The news outlet you're listening to, the random Facebook post, does not give an account before Almighty God, the chief shepherd, for your soul. Why should you let your church disciple you? Please, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Is it because we're smarter? No. Is it because we're better informed? No. In fact, I'm sorry that you're stuck with us. <laughs> Why would you be discipled by your church? Because God loves to use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Because God says, look, there's one space that when two or three are gathered together, there my presence ignites the scene. This is the space that I empower with the Holy Spirit, that I give words to what's happening. This is the space where I inject my word. This is the space where it's just the gospel. It's Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the flowing water, the living water that we need for every part of our life. He says, that's where I'm going to do that work. That's why. It's because all of us basically 
It's like Peter and John as they're walking into a city and there's a beggar that says, Peter, John, please do something for me. And you know what they say? We've got nothing for you except this, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. That's all we have together, church, is the name of Jesus. But in that, that is the power that he's surging through us. The church in our generation will have to decide who's discipling us. We have to pick. It's going to be one or the other. Here's the reality. There is, I want to close with this thought. We're warned that there is a one that prowls like a lion seeking for someone to devour. That's Satan, the devil, on the loose, looking to maim and mar and just tear lives. That's what he's looking to do. And, and how, what is his tool? It's the same thing from the beginning to the end. Lies. He uses lies. Sneaky lies. Deceptive lies. The lies to Adam and Eve sounded really good. They sounded right. They're sneaky. How do we then disentangle all the lies? There's only one that can do it. Jesus. He's the way the truth, and the life. What you need is Jesus. And what we do together is lift up Jesus and bring that to bear on every sector of our life. Let's find rest in him. I'd like to end this time with just some time of reflection. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Can you take inventory of your teachers? Please, if there's, if there's a teacher in your life that you need to just get out of your life, feel the rebuke of scripture. Cut it out of your life. And something's rearing up in you right now like, oh no, what will happen if I do it? Probably nothing but greater health for your soul. Fix your eyes on him, on Jesus. Set your mind on the things that are above. You're, you're not just a part of this earth. You're, you're a citizen of a higher kingdom. You belong to one who rules over all. Fix your attention on him. Be sober-minded. Don't let all of these teachers that you've accumulated stir you up into a frenzy. Be sober-minded. Bring the gospel to bear on every sector of your life and find rest. Don't you remember what Jesus said to you? He said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I give you rest. Come to him. Cut and prune those things that are the accumulated teachers for your itching ears and rest in him. Some of you are here and you're like, look, I, I don't know what to believe. I've never known what to believe. Maybe you say, like, I, I'm an agnostic. I don't know what's really true. 
But here's something I believe. I believe there's a piece of you that doesn't want to stay as an agnostic. I think the only reason you've given yourself that designation is because you want to know what's true. It's a person. It's Jesus. It's Almighty God who came to earth, died on a cross to pay for your sin and rose again from the dead. And he's alive and he's calling you to himself. He's going to put his, the Holy Spirit inside of you to go to work to change you from the inside out. He wants to work miracles in you, make you into something new. Just come to him who's the way, the truth, and the life. Find Jesus. You need the person, Jesus. Surrender to him now. If you want to do that, I want to lead you in a prayer. And if that's you, you're saying, look, I, I want to surrender to him. And what I want you to do, whether you're here at Cooper City, watching at home, no one's looking around. Everyone's eyes are closed. If you say, today, I am putting my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm putting my belief in him. Then what I want you to do, just, just so you have a line to draw on the sand, I want you to slip your hand up in the air, put it down, he sees it. Praise God, amen. At Cooper City, in your home, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, slip your hand in the air and say, I'm ready today. I want to do that. Praise God. If you put your hand in the air, let me lead you in a silent prayer right there in your seat. Just silently say this. Make these your words to God. Say, God, I just want you. I surrender to you. Take every part of my life. It's not much, but I give you every piece. Jesus, I will follow you and you alone. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.